Turn with me, please, to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter is where we are. First Peter chapter 1, we've been in this wonderful book, uh, what, a month and a half now? Going on maybe two months? Now, I think we're going to wrap up the first chapter this morning. If you can, we're going to be focused on verses 22 through 25. And if you can, let's stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Peter writing to the church that has been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, says this in verse 22. Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God, we do thank you, Lord, for your word. And the reminder to us all that the salvation that those of us who know it is that salvation that does not come from our attempts to save ourselves, but from your mercy and grace that you, dear God, saved us. And this letter that your servant Peter has written, Lord, please speak to us through these words. These are your words, God. This is your scripture. And I pray this morning, God, that you would just stir into each of us a sense of truth, a sense of joy, a sense of understanding what salvation is through the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, use this time for your glory. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please have a seat. Please have a seat. There's a story uh, from years ago of two construction workers. You know, when you're doing construction in, in a city and you're, and you're working on high rises, you have scaffolding and you have heights that you're working at. And it can be dangerous work. Anybody ever worked like that? Having to lay brick, carry up construction material to higher levels? Of course, it's a, a construction zone is a very dangerous place. There was one construction worker working very high up in this high rise that they were building. And he slips and he falls. And as he's coming down to the ground, there is another construction worker on the ground who looks up and sees that he is right where this guy is going to land. And he braces himself to ease that man's fall. He takes every ounce of that weight and that force upon himself and just collapses on the ground. And the man who falls, all those stories, is, I mean, he's injured but barely. But what do you think happened to the man that took all of the weight of that fall? He lived. He survived, barely. But he was crushed. I mean, bones in his body were just disintegrated. He was broken, but the man who was falling was saved. 
Now, after everyone healed and everybody recovered, the one who fell goes back to work. The one who actually suffered the impact on the ground, who saved the other man, he never really could work again. He was disabled for the rest of his life. He could not, he could hardly walk. He could never work. He was in pain because he was in such brokenness. His body was just frail and, and just twisted. And somebody asked the man who actually saved the other man once, years later, he said, how do you think about this incident? Honestly, what is on your heart about this man that you saved? And he said, let me tell you what has happened. Ever since that, this was years later, he said, ever since that accident, here's what happened. The man who fell has every single day called me to find out how I was doing that day, what he could do for me that day. Matter of fact, the man who fell ended up being an owner of a construction company and gave half of his ownership to this man who saved him. And for the rest of his life, he had an income and became very well off. The man who fell, all those stories, was grateful to the man who saved him, who broke his fall, who sacrificed himself for this other guy. And he never forgot where his salvation came from. This man who was on the ground, who broke my fall, saved me. I now am, I now owe him respect and gratitude for what he did for me. How many of us have that idea when it comes to our salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ? I think this is what Peter is trying to emphasize here in these final verses of the first chapter. He is communicating to the church that is in exile. Remember, they are spread throughout the Roman Empire, running for their lives. They are under persecution of Rome. They're in foreign territory. They're creating new communities wherever they can locate and gather. They are being looked upon as outsiders. And Paul's words of encouragement here end in this first chapter, verses 22 through 25, reminding the Christians where they're Salvation comes from, but he's encouraging them to remember this, this supernatural love that no one can explain. Right? Just like this man who saved the fallen construction worker, there may not have been a personal love connection, but he at least loved this other human being enough to, to sacrifice his own well-being for someone else. Peter says here, beginning in verse 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Clearly, he's speaking here to the Christians, right? Having purified your souls. Now, if we take this verse out of context, someone can look at this and say, Peter is emphasizing that the Christians have purified their own souls. I mean, if you read this out, if you just read it for those words, that's what you may come away with. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. That's not what is implied here, right? Because literally the context of the whole chapter leading up to here is where does salvation come from? Where does the purification come from? It comes from the precious blood of Christ who was sacrificed as a lamb without blemish or spot. You remember that last week? But now in verse 22, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, the salvation is paid for and caused by the blood of Christ. But only through that is it possible for Christians to obey the truth. 
You see, think about this. The unsaved, those who do not know Christ, do not have the capacity to demonstrate genuine love. Now, our world has a definition of what love is, which generally centers around my selfishness. How does this relationship make me feel? Do I have a romantic tingle? Right? If I don't have that romance, if it's not, if there's nothing in it for me, then I'm not going to pursue whatever that relationship would be. That's, that, that's the modern ungodly definition of love, right? But it's very easy, and I think Peter's words here are very important. It's very easy for us to take that worldly perception of love, that love is what makes me feel good, and bring it into our relationship with Christ and that love that Christ has for us. And Peter's reminding the Christians here, and he's reminding us here, that it's impossible for us to purify our souls. We, we, apart from Christ, we do not have the capacity at all to demonstrate what genuine love is. But in Christ, we understand what genuine love is. Jesus Christ Himself gives us the example through His own life and actions of what genuine love is. Jesus sacrificed Himself. His body was broken. His blood was shed. His life was taken. And then Jesus does conquer the grave. Amen? He's alive yet. Now, if we are bought by that price, if we are the recipients of that supernatural love, that genuine love, and we are genuinely changed, our souls, our spirits, our minds, our being, we are made new in Christ, then and only then is it possible for us to even grasp what genuine love is, much less be able to express it, right? If we have to remember here, these Christians in the first century were radically new people. They, they were seen in some places as a cult because they were so radically different in how they loved one another as a community of Christians, how they loved even their neighbors around them who were not Christians. Everyone looked at that and said, that's different, that's weird, and gave them the name of Christian in Acts chapter 17. It's weird. Here Peter is saying in verse 22 of chapter 1, having purified your souls. What does it mean to purify? Anybody here like to purify things? We have this water purification system at our house. We actually have several. We've got a water purification system under the house attached to the water lines coming into the house. And the filtration system is very extensive and perfect. I mean, it really makes the water clean. and It tastes really good. And then when it comes into the house and comes through the refrigerator, we have another filtration system through the refrigerator. The water that came from the water lines through the filtration system under the house comes through the filtration system through the refrigerator. Then... We have another filtration system I just put together, I think for the second time in our in the last few years, that we pour that water into another filtration system that if we were if if there was ever a nuclear war, we've got purified water. We could purify our water with this it's this stainless steel canister that sits on our countertop and it's got charcoal filters and stuff, and we even have extra filters on it that can filter out arsenic. We're ready. It takes a lot to purify things, doesn't it? 
having purified your souls. When we're purifying something, what are we doing? We're, we're casting out the impurities. We're casting out the things that we don't need. We're, we're purging it. This idea here of purification of your souls, the Greek word here is catharsis. You know what you know what it means to be uh, what catharsis is. Ever to be cathartic means to purify your emotions, right? To have a like if you read a wonderful poem or you hear beautiful music, right? And, and anybody here have a good cry after a, a, a drama, a dramatic story or song? Anybody here like anybody like that? Anybody guilty of that? That is actually a catharsis. You're purging your emotions through that music or that song or that story. Nothing wrong with that. It's good. It's healthy for you, right? You can't bottle up all your tension. You gotta, you gotta have a cathartic moment and purge it. Take that same idea here to our souls that Peter's talking about here in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, there's this healthy catharsis that happens in our spirit that purges those things away from us, that keeps us from understanding natural Love that God under, that God imparts. This genuine love that is beyond our understanding. That comes through the obedience to the truth. The truth of the gospel. The truth of the salvation through Jesus Christ, through His sacrifice for us. All of this leads to what He says, a sincere brotherly love. Right? A sincere brotherly love. Let's just be real direct and honest, and I'm not bringing this up as a, as a bash against other churches. There's enough of that out there. Oh, you know, those churches, they hate people, and they're not as loving as we are, and you know, and then everybody just gets all high and mighty and not very loving in claiming how loving they are, right? Peter here is talking about this sincere... What does this sincere love mean, right? It's clearly modeled after the sincere love that Jesus Christ has imparted upon us through His sacrifice, selflessness. In this sincere brotherly love amongst the Christians, we will love one another sincerely, earnestly, from a pure heart, a heart that's been purified through the blood of Christ, and that's been purified through Christ's sacrifice for us. That's the only way that any kind of sincere brotherly love can even begin to happen, much less be expressed and then be witnessed by the outside community. So, as a church here, Sovereign Grace Baptist Church, let's ponder this for a minute. We all started as a Bible study. Do we love one another? Honestly, I've not heard of any bickering amongst us. Might be a little bit, but you all kept it from me. I don't know. If there is any bickering, we need to purge it. We have to have, go through a catharsis here. We've got to work it out. We've got to love each other through it, right? Through the blood of Christ. Because think of this. Peter's encouraging the church here in the first century that you are in exile, right? That's what the first chapter is speaking about. You are elect exiles of the dispersion, the diaspora. You are going to be witnesses of Jesus Christ wherever you are cast out into exile. What does that witness look like? It is a sincere brotherly love here in verse 22. That sincere brotherly love that you have, this this Philadelphia type love. That's what this refers to, this friendship of like brotherhood, family. Brothers and sisters are implied here. It's not a, a gender exclusive thing. Right? 
See, beyond Christ's love for us as the faithful, right? Beyond Christ's sacrifice for us is this mutual love that we share as the family of God. Right? And what is this? This family of God, those, we are, the family of God is those who are rescued from eternal death through the blood of Christ. And those on the outside will see a love here that they say, wow, there's something different there. They may even say, that's awful weird. I think it would be a badge of honor for somebody to say, you know what, that's a weird church over there. They love each other. Ponder that for a minute. That's a weird group of Christians because they actually genuinely care for one another and they don't gossip about each other and they don't cause problems. Kind of what the first century church was encouraged to be like. When you read the New Testament, Peter's letters here, and then all of Paul's letters deal with the same thing. You are called by God to be different, and you are His people. He has made you His own. You are to be different. And that difference is not quirky weirdness. That difference is a genuine love weirdness. Amen? And what's he talking about here? That comes through a purification of our souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love and to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Because, why is this the case? Why do we love each other through a pure heart that's been purified? Verse 23, since you have been born again. Let's go back here. To 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. I'm going to read verses 3 through 5 again. This is the, remember, this is how this whole letter started. This is now the end of the letter. Let's go back to how it started. Chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Remember in verse 3, who has caused us to be born again? God the Father, through His mercy and grace, through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ, God the Father has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now back over to verse 23. Since you have been born again. Not that we have caused our own birth. Not that we have caused our own catharsis of purification of the soul. That God Himself through His mercy and grace has caused us to be born again. Verse 23. Not of perishable seed but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding Word of God. How is it? that all of creation began in Genesis chapter 1? In the beginning, God said. Every one of us are sitting here this morning alive as human beings. We are entities of ourselves. We, We exist. We breathe because God Himself spoke and created all things. Amen? That's a deep, that right right there is about another six months worth of sermons. Just to ponder, what does it mean that God spoke and all things came to be? Verse 23, since we've been born again, when things are born and grow, I mean, 
some of us in this room, I know, some of us have gardens. We have flower beds. We're growing things. And this is the, during the season. Hopefully, if, if the sun doesn't scorch it or if the rain doesn't drown it, we're growing something, right? My house, we've got some small vegetable beds. We're growing some vegetables. You know, we're, we're getting out some things. We're, uh, we're, some, we're harvesting some beets this week that I'm being told are great. I've not had any yet, right? We're, we're getting some okra. We're getting some squash and zucchini right now. And we've got some tomatoes on the vine. Maybe someday we'll be able to get those. But, you know, that seed that we cast out there, they are perishable seeds, right? They are perishable. They're not going to last forever. So if we, what Peter's reminding the church here in verse 23, we've been born again from something that we ourselves have not sown with something that is perishable. The salvation that we cause for ourselves is going to be something that will die. And it's not genuine. It's not a loving salvation. It's not a permanent, eternal salvation that's promised through Christ. This is why it's very important to remember that our salvation is not something that we decide. That's a dangerous path to go down. There is a point where we wake up to the reality that we need a Savior. There is a point where we surrender to that and we, we submit to what Christ has done. We, we believe what He has done, but that's not what we cause to make for ourselves, right? This salvation of Christ, according to Peter in verse 23, is imperishable. It's never going to die. The salvation of Jesus Christ, this new life that we have, this supernatural love that we are encountering is imperishable because the salvation comes through the living and abiding Word of God. And then in verse 24 and 25, he gives an example here from Isaiah. Isaiah he's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verses 6 and 8, if you're taking notes. All flesh is like grass. This is one of the reasons I had us read Isaiah 40 today. Right? If you look back at Isaiah 40, our scripture reading for this morning, just, un, just ponder what's being said here. There's a voice in the wilderness preparing the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Speaking about the valley, speaking about the flesh is, is grass, verse 6. A voice cry, says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. What does that mean? Does grass continue to live forever? Right? We're in the season right now, we have to cut the grass, because it's alive and it's growing. But there will come a point in the yearly seasons where the grass will stop to grow. And if it, if, you know, if it stops receiving any kind of nutrients, it's going to dry up and wither, correct? So even plant life, grass that is alive, depends on another source for that living, right? Some of us may wish that our grass would dry up and die right now because we're mowing it so often. I don't know. Stop watering it then. Cut off the sun. Promise you it'll die. And then you'll be complaining that now you've got a bunch of mud and dirt. But that's the point here in Isaiah. All flesh is like grass. It's, a, it's an allegory. It's a comparison. Grass withers and dies. And even the beauty of the flower 
What is it that makes a, a flower so attractive? Part of it is that it is so limited. It's fleeting. The flower blooms and the flower fades. And so that short span of beauty is so much more precious because it is limited. And again in Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. In verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades. What? But the word of our God will stand forever. That's the comparison to the salvation that we know through Jesus Christ. Our life is fleeting at best. So if that's the case, I'm going to break the bad news to everybody. You may not know this. Here's the news flash. In about 50 years, not a single one of us in this room is going to be here. Except maybe the kids. Go out in another 100 years. Maybe, now, maybe you 20-year-olds, you might still be here in 50 years. Let's go out another 100 years. I promise you, nobody in this room will be here in 100 years. Does that break your heart? That's a reality of living, isn't it? So if that's the case, if our life is limited at best, everything that we put our hands to, everything that we try to do under our own power is going to fade. It's going to be limited. I mean, even whatever buildings we create are going to have a lifespan unless they're maintained and, and boosted up, right? But if Jesus himself causes it to happen, that's the difference that Peter's replying about here. All salvation of God, of His Son Jesus Christ, is permanent and eternal and worthy of remembering. You remember that salvation of the construction worker? If we can remember what someone else has done for us sacrificially, why can we not remember what Christ has done for us eternally? You see the point? That's what Peter is encouraging the church here in these final verses of chapter 1. Do not forget where your salvation comes from. Do not forget that, first of all, you did not save yourself. It was God's mercy and grace through that, through His blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, that you are saved. And in the midst of your persecution, in the midst of your suffering and sorrow, do not remember, do not forget Always remember who purified your souls, who caused you to obey the truth of the gospel, who caused this sincere brotherly love that is amongst you. No matter what man comes against you with, you have a Savior of Jesus Christ who is God's Son who died on the cross for you. And He did so because He loved you. And that's permanent. Amen? So our salvation in Jesus Christ is not something to forget or take for granted. That's the point here. Because in verse 25, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This gospel of salvation through God's grace and mercy that is in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 3 through 5. Wow. Now, how many of us in this room have actually expressed gratitude of remembrance to our Lord for saving us this week? 
You know? When people do things for us, it's nice to say thank you, isn't it? It's nice to remember, you were very nice to me, thank you. That's a polite response, isn't it? Have you all ever sent a present or a card to somebody and they never once acknowledged that they got it? Yeah, my mama, whenever I would receive a, a gift at my birthday or at Christmas or if I got something in the mail, like a card or something, she trained us as children, okay, you're going to call so-and-so and say thank you. Or if you see them, you're going to say thank you. You're going to write a thank you card. It's, it's an act of remembrance. But that remembrance is also a, an act of gratitude. And so if Jesus Christ has saved us by his blood, are we grateful? Do we remember the love that He's shown us and then likewise share that same love to others? That's the question, isn't it? Let me close this in prayer. At this time, we're going to come to the table of our Lord. We do this the first Sunday of every month. And there's a reason why Jesus Himself instituted this Lord's Supper, this communion time. And so that we can remember the salvation, we can remember the cost of the salvation, we can remember the love poured out on us through the blood of Christ. It's for our benefit. It's an act of worship. It's nothing that saves us. Coming to this table does not earn our salvation through Christ. Amen? But what it does do, it is... It is a, an ordinance given to us by our Savior so that we will remember the price that was paid for us. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. I don't have it marked. He tells us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Beginning in verse 23, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And then he gives it to us. We're going to go through this here in a second. But he also says this in verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does this unworthy manner Mean This unworthy manner means an attitude of ungratefulness. A worthy manner is a manner of gratitude and remembrance. Thank you, Jesus, for the love you shed for us. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. The body here implies the body of Christ, literally, but also us as the church. We are the body of Christ as well. So we must, we must discern the body of Christ. We must discern ourselves as a body that gathers in Christ. We must discern our own individual spirits and our attitudes toward Christ because this is a serious business. Again, let me remind us, it does not save us. This act of communion does not save us. 
We are not literally eating Christ's flesh and literally drinking His blood. This is simply a remembrance of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice and His love for us. Are we grateful? Is there anything in us that hinders that gratitude? That's the point here. And all of us go through the same thing. It's good for us to examine our hearts and to occasionally ask the Lord to reveal to us those areas in our spirit that need to be purged. So as we pray and as I distribute the elements, I want you to take this time to just meditate before the Lord and use this time to ask the Lord to honestly reveal inside of us anything that needs to be purged out and to focus our attitudes in a worthy manner. Amen. Let me pray.